I just want to point out here that the boom boom at the beginning of the Netflix stuff, like the Netflix theme or whatever. When the logo goes? Uh, I learned from the Tucker Carlson interview with Kevin Spacey that that comes from a noise that Kevin Spacey himself makes in the hit show Frank Cards House of Cards. He does boom boom. I've never seen it. And so without further ado, and as you could tell by that intro, I would like to introduce our guest today, Kevin Spacey. Hello, Brace. Hello, Brace. Good evening. Because it is evening. It is evening, and I'm fucking freezing. This is so cold. I'm so cold that I can't, I don't even have the ability to not mention it on air because I'm so fucking cold. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish you could see Liz right now. Actually, I would hate for you to see Liz because I would have to honor kill her. But uh, Liz is currently wearing a, uh, some kind of warm style jacket. You can hear it. You can hear it. Make the noise. I love the noise. It's too, I couldn't wear it during the interview because it's too loud. It's it's a loud motherfucking jacket. you know what? I don't care for these, for listeners, for listening to me yap. I don't care. You get to hear this. You get to hear it. But Liz is is currently, you're doing it too, dude. I'm, I'm mirroring. What you okay? That's because I'm cold. Your own issues too. Well, I'm dealing with two very wait, different. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not cold. But that's because I'm cold. I understand that's oh. because you're cold. But 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 I'm not saying you shouldn't be cold. Well, I wish you weren't cold. I feel no, like no, I'm being trapped that, here. No, because I feel like you're suggesting that my posture isn't like me crossing my arms is just because I'm cold. Well, it is because you're cold. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's oh, okay. what I'm saying. I thought yeah. you were thinking that I was cross. God, I'm just well. Now I'm well. Now I'm just clearing the air. Cross-examination. Oh, the Arctic air because it's fucking freezing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to True and I. Welcome to True and I. My name is Braze Belden. I'm Liz. We are, of course, joined by producer Young Chomsky. Already said what it was, but I'll say it again. It's True and And uh, today we have a first part of a two-part couple of interviews. Yeah. <laughs> I don't we, know where I was going with that. So... We are interviewing a couple of Joe Schmoes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> a couple of real gumshoes, though. Real gumshoes. Real life gumshoes. Uh, two fellas who found themselves kind of in the midst of a investigating a crazy story. And I think they got wrapped up in it and spit yes. back out. Not the same. And you know what? Who, whom among us? Yeah, I got to say, it is, it is in talking to them— uh, and watching the documentary and just uh, uh, this was a big motherfucking project. Yes, and it is must. I that's, I feel like that's a, that's kind of getting towards in the second episode. I was just like, damn, you must feel insane. Right yeah, now totally. To, like put this to bed after ten years. Yeah. Um, but there is a documentary, a new documentary. I think the first one, at least that I know. I know there was like a unsolved mysteries about Danny Casalero, but. Uh, about the octopus. Mm. And the octopus is one of those things that I guess in, I don't want to say like the conspiracy world, but I'll say it, the conspiracy world is like a very, it's troubling 
set of uh, allegations, I guess. Uh, and I, I mean that because it, it, it has like, it's so vast and sprawling and covers so many different things that mm-hmm. like, not only is there a certain amount of difficulty in telling the story, yeah, uh, but there's a certain amount of difficulty in understanding it itself. I mean, you can see that we have to go through a lot just to even get the basic stuff out there that people, so people can really understand what we're talking about in the most general sense. Yeah. I mean, it basically centers around a journalist, Danny Castellero, who finds himself trying to track down why uh, why a company got screwed by the government on a seemingly innocuous piece of software and a government contract. And it leads him down, I guess you would say, a rabbit hole. I mean, it really is like an Alice in Wonderland fucking story. Yeah. And he finds himself on the other side with his wrist slashed in a bathtub under mysterious circumstances. And everything that happens in between is a bunch of smoke and mirrors, a bunch of shady characters, a bunch of maybe real-life funny three-letter agency, you know, Mm -hmm. mercenaries, a bunch of, you know, I don't know what you say, like members of the criminal underworld and the government overworld and everything in between. And... um, the two, uh, Zach and Christian, who are here today talking to us from, you know, they made this movie called American Conspiracy, The Octopus Murders. I said that funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but they found themselves basically back in Danny's shoes investigating this story. Yeah. It's a weird sort of, we get into it a bit later, but a weird doubling that happens that everyone that kind of tries to get into this thing from whatever angle it is, is not the same when they come out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's one of those things that I was very um I, I mean I was I was surprised that someone was doing a documentary on this because it's such a big subject and so I mean, and I think they do a really good job of showing essentially like all of the uh different facets, the the human facets of this yeah. case. Um but it's such a sprawling conspiracy that touches on almost every Deep event or or facet of the deep state uh, in the in the post war era uh, and 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 during the Cold War and it's it's really it's really something. Um, also, just weird coincidence. I I met both of these guys completely randomly. No idea they were involved in this like a month and a half ago, which I think mm. is strange. Or was it random? Or was it random? I sat right next to one of them at a or- thing. Was it? Who knows? Um, but that was always just like, what the fuck? Um, anyways, uh, the documentary comes out uh, on the 28th on Netflix. This is not an ad for Netflix. Watch it however you can. Uh, but I, I got to tell you, it's it's really good. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I think they did a – as somebody who has, um, a, you know, certainly a cursory knowledge of of this, uh, it really it really does a great job of telling the story. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Rez. We have with us here Michael, can I get a bump, bro? And Johnny Casamigos. That intro was rough. Let me. I think maybe... Johnny Casamigos was funny. Johnny Casamigos was pretty good. I was struggling with the other. With the other, I was trying to come up with something for Reconosciuto. Mm. And can I get a bump, bro? Works in a sense, but it's a little too Shakespearean, I think for much of our audience who is frankly probably listened to this through one of those AI language translators into Chinese. 
Fellas, welcome to the studio. We have with us here, and I have my phone out with the with the full title and everything, so I don't fuck this up. The creators of American Conspiracy, The Octopus Murders, uh, director Zachary Traits, an independent, well, no. Dependent. And dependent. <laughs> Uh, investigator and uh, producer, I guess, uh, Christian Hansen. Hello. I'm. Thank God. Did I fuck either of your names up? Your faces didn't. You register. gotta fuck Zach's name up a little bit. It's a tough. It's ethnic. It's so it's difficult. For I me. guess depending on where you're from. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's also a bummer because like in the in the film that we made, somebody cold calls me and they mispronounce my name. And so now there, everybody dude. pronounces it that way, oh, you know, automatically. Yeah. How, how, how do they okay. say it? He says, Zachary Treats, please. Zach- Mr. Treats. Zach- I'm used Zachary to getting treats? that by people who don't know my name. But now yeah. it's like, I think that's now like every Christian was like, don't you want to like correct that in the movie? And I was like, how? Do Over I do yeah. Like I put AI. my voice in there. Just is use AI. It's Trites. So it's like a little German <laughs> you know, boy. Me correcting him on the phone. Yeah. Trites, please. It's like a little German boy asking for candy. Try it. please. Try it, please. Fellas, welcome to the show. Uh, uh, first of all, I should start off with, uh, I think by the time this episode is out, on the day this episode comes out, your film is not yet out. I think this is coming out on the 26th. Your, your flick is coming out on the 28th. But on uh, February 28th, the, all four episodes of American Conspiracy, The Octopus Murders, will mm-hmm. be on Netflix. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yes. Same correct. time. Yes. Dropping the same time. They all okay. come out at once. Your, your information's correct. So just to just uh, just to let you listeners know, a lot of this, I feel like this will uh, anyone with a cursory knowledge of the octopus sprawl will definitely uh, have a lot to dig in with these. But I feel like anybody, even if you do, would be definitely would benefit from watching all four episodes if to to get a lot of what we're talking about and to put a lot of it into context, uh, which I'm very excited to get to. Agreed. So wait, I have a question right off the bat, which is how long have you guys been working on this thing? Because in the in the in the episodes, is it episodes or I'm gonna probably call it episodes and movie, just so you know. I do the same thing. Okay, so in the movie that's broken in episodes, <laughs> uh, it seems like it's spanning about ten years, but it's a little unclear. Of our time. Of your time. Right. Like how long did this whole project take? Well, Christian uh, started it. Yeah, I started first in about like 2011 or 2012, uh-huh. and then um, and I was working um, doing research for what I was hoping would be a book project. Interesting. And um, meanwhile, Zach was making an independent film that uh, was set during the Civil War, and uh, then we decided. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, in about 2017, like Zach had decided to to join me on, in this pro in this process in this adventure. I you mean, got- it wasn't. I don't even know if it was a decision. It was just like Christian would talk to me about this story. I didn't know anything about it. You know, starting whenever he started, it started. You know, his quest into it got more and more esoteric and strange <laughs> and kind of worrisome, you know, yeah. him just stand up like late nights, you know, you go over to his house. It's like, I've been up for like two days. And it's like, mm. yeah, you look like it. Like, yeah. this is horrible. <laughs> Talking about so PDS. our friends would, you know, me, our friends, his sisters, the family, you know, it got to the, be the point sometimes. And I hate to like put, you know, Christians, I think in a better place now, but um, we, we were just like, man, I'm worried about him. And everybody's like, yeah. We are. Like, is, there, is it intervention? Like, what do we do? And um, 
you know, he kind of – that came and went. I think the most intense parts of it came and went in those those first five years. Yeah. And then – 2015 was like the most intense. Bleak. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean? Just like um, – Withdrawal I, I was like, from yeah, everybody. Yeah, like kind of withdrawed from uh, society. Um, you know, talking a lot about PDFs, like Liz said. <laughs> and um, I, I mean I was so kind of like lost on, and on my own that I – Kind of not even uh, like kind of overtly wanted some sort of assassin or some sort of like sign, sign from the octopus. that like I was onto something and all of this was real because I was just is is it it was something it was so tangible yet intangible mm. and I was going looking into such dangerous stuff and so many people who had died and and it was getting more and more obscure and and more and more personal. And yeah, I just remember like, you know, um, I was living in Red Hook at, at that time, and and just like hoping that like you know someone would someone would pop in and and shut it down. Mm-hmm. You were hoping that someone would shoot you on the side. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and you're yeah. like, wait, we don't need an intervention. We need to make a movie. <laughs> this is the perfect opportunity. Yeah, so we just decided to scare him one night. Uh, I no, do think that like there the, is something. The, can I just say his opinion on that? I think has changed. So for any fans out there, future fans, his opinion on that 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 desire has changed. Don't, so don't you don't do it to help. You want to say do not love, kill I love Christian. being alive. Yeah, okay. yeah we, we're loving life. I didn't mean to cut you off, but no, I just no, it's fine. No, I think that there is something that's very specific about this story that drives people crazy, and I know that we want to talk about yes. that, and that's a big part of. I mean that comes into play in the in the series, obviously, and is like a big kind of part of the the narrative. But maybe in order to get into that, we should kind of back up yeah. and give as much of a kind of outline overview, a uh, little. I think a little sketch. Yeah. What yeah. are we talking about? What are we talking about? <laughs> maybe it's not like what is the octopus. Maybe we should start with Danny Castellaro and work our way backwards and forwards. Yeah, and yeah, every and direction. And yeah, and try to keep. I think it's important to try to keep it in a timeline so people can understand what we're bouncing around. There's like multiple layers of different stories that are interconnected with different timelines, including our own timeline. So we'll try to like constantly while we were making the show. It was a matter of like, how do you make this make sense? And mm. we will try to do that in an even more limited form of audio now. Yeah, yeah, I, I believe me, I'm familiar with, and especially because there are two people in the documentary and two people in the story with the same last name. <sighs> believe me, that has been one of our biggest struggles. If we ever do an episode <laughs> with two people with the same last name, forget it. No, yeah. there's try, three. try three. Try three. Try three rabbis. Try three. Oh, my God. Yeah. Three rabbis. Really three. We, then we have, so there's two people with different, uh, the same last name, and then um, the son of the guy with the other yes, name has yes. the same first name as the other guy with the same last name. Right, Bobby Nichols. Bobby and Robert. Robert God. Nichols. And not and just not that, related. because of the nature of this story, you start to question whether or not that's intentional. Right, you start to question: uh, Is this? Am I being fucked with? There's a lot of like pattern on recognition a level. Yes, yeah. or even intentionally by you know bad actors. Okay, we so don't even, I mean, just want to throw a pin in. It's like the there's the there's the Philip Arthur Thompson story. We found out there were two Philip Arthur Thompsons. Yeah, Jesus. Possibly Christ. one of them was named Philip Alan, Alan Thompson. And they're both and they're murderous, like, and they're both possible murders. It was very strange. Very well, difficult. I, so I, I would say I think some of our listeners might be familiar with Danny Castellaro's name. 
in the same sort of way, I feel like he's him and Gary Webb are two of the journalists that people think of of like dying under mysterious circumstances while looking into or having looked into something that uh, intelligence agencies would rather they haven't. And I feel like Gary Webb, there's been a lot of attention. Pay, I mean, there, there, that is, there's, that is, there's been movies and books and documentaries and all this kind of stuff. Um, Danny Castellaro less so, although also pretty prominent. So I think, yeah, let's start with doing a little timeline of his death. So and maybe life. Yeah. In life, he, yeah. Um, Danny Castellaro um, was born in um, – in Northern Virginia, like D- basically DC, in McLean, mm-hmm. Virginia, and uh, and <laughs> sorry, he uh, he in 1990 he, he started researching this book project that started out being about stolen computer software, and just to really make it all very briefly, that w- he started in August 1990, and in. August 1991, he told several close friends that he was going to West Virginia, this town, Martinsburg, West Virginia, which is about an hour and a half drive from Northern Virginia, Mm -hmm. to meet a source that he was both excited about and scared of that was going to help him tie up this research project that had morphed since the initial question that he had about the stolen software into like this interconnected web of arms deals and espionage and lies and weird shady characters that he'd become very close with. And um, he is seen, we have reports of him waiting around for someone. There's also blocks of time that we haven't been able to, to account for based on the, what, you know, the police records from his final days. And then um, on Saturday morning, early in the morning, he wrote a very brief note that said, to my loved ones, please forgive me for what I've done, most especially my son. Um, I know deep down in my heart, God will let me in. And then... Um, that's a paraphrase. Yeah, that's, yeah. I think that's roughly what roughly he what said. Yeah, it's like if a three-line exactly, yeah. yeah. and, um, and then he committed suicide. Or... Or did he died. <laughs> I mean, he died in the bathroom, um, in the bathtub, um, you know, and two weeks before that, he had told his brother that, you know, if an accident happens, don't believe it. Um, all, all kinds of, I mean, we'll get into it, but there's, it's a very odd set of circumstances. I mean, mm-hmm. Gary Gary Webb is, uh, his story is also important and, and, and sad, and I think Gary Webb, almost certainly did commit suicide. Yeah, that seems to be a consensus among a lot of people. Now. You know, there are two bullet holes in the head, but one was in the cheek. Yeah. And, you know, but it's also interesting that the 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 New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post actively, like, destroyed him and picked his story apart. Rather than taking a really good piece of journalism and running with it and, and expanding on it, they used... Uh, unnamed CIA sources to yeah. to debunk him, and they picked apart his personal life, and they, you know, it was awful, and they they destroyed his career was destroyed by his colleagues mm-hmm. unnecessarily, and um, yeah, I think he might have committed suicide. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. His but- career was murdered by unnamed sources from the mm-hmm. CIA. Whereas you but, know, Dan, Danny lives. Danny was reporting on similar stuff. Danny and him talked, right? No, Were Danny they, and Gary, Gary didn't re- talk. But Danny is a footnote. There's a f- Danny's mentioned in Gary right. Webb's book, Dark Alliance. Right. But whereas Danny's death was ruled 
a suicide by the local police. And then two days later, they got in touch with his family. And that's sort of like, why is there a two-day gap? Created some suspicion around it, what was happening in that time. And then the family said, well, okay, suicide, but, you know, (laughs) you got to understand what our brother, what Danny was working on to really know whether it was a suicide or something else happened because he was dealing with a lot of dangerous people and and dangerous stories. He'd be getting threats. And we'd like you to look into this. And that kind of set up this media firestorm, I guess, that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that, that descended on Martinsburg and that whole D.C. area. It became a national news story about what happened to Danny. Was he, was he murdered? All this stuff. And then... As those things tend to happen, I mean, there was was an investigation by the local police. They said it was indeed a suicide. The family pushed harder. A few years later, there was an FBI investigation, DOJ FBI investigation that reexamined the Martinsburg stuff. They said that the evidence was that he had committed suicide. Um, And there were a few other, like, sort of congressional and and other independent investigations. Um, But essentially, for the last... 30 years, there's been this question and almost, a, I guess, a mushrooming in the kind of conspiracy industrial complex about (laughs) like, well, like, obviously this is a cover-up from the government Mm -hmm. and like Danny was on to like the the secret powers underneath, you know, how the world works. Um, And he was, you know, definitely assassinated and the, the official story has always been like, guys, get it together. He was broke. He was... At the end of his rope, there was no story there. He committed suicide. Accept it, you know? And so... But then there's also there's the question of what happened to him. Mm-hmm. But I was also intrigued by the question of, okay, so what was he working on? And yeah. in the articles that I found about him, um, there are... It would name-checked name different major scandals from the 1980s. The October Surprise, which is the... Whatever it's the rigging of the 1980 election between yeah. Carter and Reagan. There's the Iran Contra scandal and um, savings and loan crisis. All these different um, 1980s 1980s mm. scandals, um, which I, as like a C student, didn't know that much about. <laughs> also, they're not taught uh, that much. Yeah, they no, don't teach us about the savings. But I, I mean, and, and, and co- obviously, I would take a couple of years. And obviously the Inslaw case yes. was, you know, and and so I was, you know, very curious what he was inter- that what he was looking into, and it all seemed really interest interesting to me. So I was both wanting to figure out what happened to him, and then also figure out what it was exactly he was looking into, and try to figure out. Um, and, and no one had done that before. And and he did leave behind a lot of notes and scribbles and book proposals. And the notes have, you know, phone numbers of people's names and companies and all this stuff. So I've just started familiarizing myself with the with the milieu of 1980s conspiracy and political scandals and the, got to familiar with the characters involved. Very important one is a guy named William Casey, mm-hmm. who's a CIA director for Ronald Reagan. Um, and yeah, I mean, we base, I mean, and it's just like this long, what became a 10-year uh, or longer and kind of continuing process of mapping out this whole um story, you know, both the story he was writing and the, you know, what happened to him when he died and why. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about, as much as we can, the story he was writing. You mentioned the Inslaw case. Maybe we should start there because yeah. that's kind of when Danny's uh, you know, introduction into all of this begins, right? He's working at, what was the name of the computer? It's computer World. Computer Age. Computer, computer Age. Age. It was like a— Little trade publication. Right. Um, um, and I want to correct the record. Wikipedia is quote, quotes a Vanity Fair article by Ron Rosenbaum that says that he was a dabbler in journalism. And that's incorrect. I mean, working for a trade publication is journalism. You do have to develop true. sources. True. You do have to break stories. And you're actually like more familiar with your particular area of interest yeah. than a— Ron Rosenbaum, who's writing about a mysterious death in Martinsburg, uh, the skull and bones, or, or whatever. You know. uh, Ron Rosenbaum is like, a, yeah. has I've been driven a little bit crazy by. Yeah. <laughs> no, then, yeah, and we're not like sitting no, here to he like, just, attack no, he, no, Ron Rosenbaum. No, but no, piece, no, but we are. In the piece, yeah. he goes on, on, a limb, in the, in the piece, he goes on, on, on a limb saying that, um, that basically Danny conned his family into believing that he was into believing that his death was a suicide made, designed by Danny to look like a murder so that his Catholic family could deal with the loss of him. Yeah, That's the contention yeah. he goes out on. and like, Which is the same contention that the FBI lands on, which I find strange. As a journalist, that's a big limb to go out on. And he also was friends with Danny. And it's just like I could never – I would never go on that limb. And leaving out Quare. Like one of your he knew boys. about Quare. Quare was around back then. Yeah, yeah. So he paints him as a as a hack and a kook. And he also does a good – it's a good piece. You know, yeah, like I read it. Yeah, yeah. He has amazing quotes from people at the time. It's just the conclusion is really strange. It's like, yeah. I, I guess for me it's like just that one little conclusion of – and we're getting ahead of ourselves maybe a little mm-hmm. bit here, but just just while we're on the topic, it's like, okay, so he he made it look like a, it was a suicide, made it look like a murder. Why did he write the note? Yeah, why would he write like, the note? N- the, yeah, the police thought the, it was a suicide. Like, he he, he kind of missed the mark on that because, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the officials thought it was a suicide. Nobody yeah, really he was so good questioned at it that it, he just yeah, convinced it, everyone. Because it, it really does, you know, yeah. once you look into it, once you look at the actual scene, which we eventually did, like, yeah, it looks like if you don't know anything, it looks like a suicide. Yeah, yeah. Not, he's not doing a great job of making it look like a sort of well, murder. Well, he he paints Danny in that in that piece too as like very um, willing to believe everything everyone tells him, um, which I as I've, I gather isn't exactly the case, but it's sort of like a a, uh, a that that maybe because of that that article or whatever. But that's like sort of how Danny Castellaro was seen by a lot of people as somebody who was just like. Overly accepting of these narratives that were spun by you know, inarguable con men, uh, but it, it's 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 interesting because it is very like yeah it's it's sort of it is a I think I mean I think re- listeners should read the piece you can yeah. you can look it up it's called the strange death of Danny Casalero mm-hmm. yeah. um, and uh, it's but, well ri- I mean it's yeah, well written well written yeah. it's got a lot of uh, amazing quotes from the time from the people who were talking to him yeah. from his friends that that we relied on. It's just there's some there's some stuff in there that's weird, but and like we were mentioned, the that Danny got into this via the Inslaw case. Sorry, yes. And Inslaw is something that we've actually talked about a bit on this podcast before, and and the Promise software, yeah. 
Um, I think it's been kind of a while since we, we talked about it. But this was a pretty major scandal that happened a good deal before Danny's suicide. Like, this was not something. Ten years. I mean, it was still ongoing. I think it went on to like, 2005 or something like that. Um, but, like, the, 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 the bulk of it being, like, real news came about in, the, uh, in like, the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's funny because, like, you guys have this sort of, like, archival footage, I guess, of, like, an Inslaw ad for Promise. Like there's is that we, is, yeah we we have like a lot of like their promotional materials and stuff that you, yeah that you see in the in the thing um, the insult I mean the insult affair as it's yeah. come to be called is like its own thirty part you know series if you really want to go into it. it's yeah, like such yeah. a Byzantine each each one of the things that we went into is such a Byzantine rabbit hole you know to, for lack of a better word. But I, I think it does bear just like a quick explanation, yeah. maybe just to just to blaze through a little context, right? Of like yeah, what it is sure. that Danny, you know. So should I just like take a take a quick stab at this, just to like Absolutely. hit the high points, right? So you've got this company started by a guy named Bill Hamilton, who was a former NSA um, operative who had spent time in Vietnam in the 1970s, early 70s, um, or late, late 60s, early 70s. Um, he was in the NSA for seven years either way. Uh, he got out. He responded to a bid to create software for the Justice Department to essentially digitize the Justice Department's files, create a, a management system, which he eventually called Promise, Prosecutor's Information Management System, um, that would, you know, do what we, you know, now seems pretty obvious. It's like take all this paper stuff, put it digital, you can search names, you can search, you know, cases, you can, you know, you can find that this defendant is actually this def- same guy as this defendant. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh, there's a pattern. There's a crime spree, you know. The, the, one of the pilot projects was in Washington, D.C., and they found that 10% of detectives closed cases, like, like close like ninety like percent of the cases 90%, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. the super cop study. It became a big. It was a research. Yeah. Promise also was a major research tool yeah. for law enforcement at that time. The first like computer research thing, and the super cop study came out, and it was like, oh wow, like we this changes how we yeah. deal with law enforcement, how we deal. There's with, like a huge, major, major step in like massive computing like management systems that then ends up as we'll talk about. Not just in other countries, but like being deployed in like not just in like the Justice Department, but yeah, they in sold like it commercially. Yeah, commercially, like yep. in hospitals where yep. you would manage medical records, yep. or in university systems where you would manage personnel files, or whatever, whatever it is. It was just this sort of like massive architecture for file management and networking that was completely searchable through whatever sort of like keyword and strings that you kind of put in there and, you know, tags and whatever, whatever, right? Yeah, and the people who made it, I mean, it was a small company in Washington, D.C., Bill, his wife Nancy was also involved, and, and, you know, a small group, and it kind of grew and grew as, as it became more popular, and and it got to the point where, and it, and, and it was largely funded, originally it was a nonprofit that was mm-hmm. funded by Grants from the what's called the LEAA, the Law Enforcement Administration. Yes. Uh, whatever. Um, I don't need to get into every Shady acronym. characters in their own right. This is like the acronyms. Yeah. The story is the acronym soup. You know, and, uh, we don't have to do every single one. Um, but so, but but essentially, by the by the late seventies, they took the they took the pro- company private because the grants were drying up, and they signed a contract with the Justice Department to do a initial look at putting it putting promise into 
what was it, 10, 20 uh, offices, 20 offices, eventually pilot program to eventually j- modernize essentially the entire Justice Department. So potentially worth like millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah. you know? If not Big, more. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it just depends on who you ask. But <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's worth a lot of money. It's a huge job. And they are stoked because they have the federal government paying them to 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 make their software. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. To, to deploy government contracts. That's your dream. And you know, and it just happens to be the same time that the Reagan administration is coming into uh, power in D.C. And that kind of plays large, looms large over the rest of the story. And and so um, the people who are in the Justice Department and the new administration, they sign a contract to. It's worth, what, $6.8 million is the original contract to do this pilot program. And then just kind of months later, they're having problems with the Justice Department saying that, like, oh, you guys aren't delivering, whatever. And that, over the next year or two, leads to the Justice Department withholding payments. Insula is driven into bankruptcy um, because they can't pay. You know, their almost only major contract is not paying them. And they then sue the Justice Department in bankruptcy court saying that the, the Justice Department has been, um, you know, withholding payments and has driven them into bankruptcy. And that mm-hmm. starts this kind of crazy legal odyssey for them. When they have the Elliot Richardson, who's a hero of Watergate, the former attorney general, yeah. uh, representing them, and the former uh, president of the D.C. Bar, Charles Work, who's in the film, also representing them. And, and they... They win the their first case, yeah. And the bankruptcy court judge rules that they that the Justice Department stole their software using trickery, fraud, and deceit. And it was pretty clear that the software did get stolen, and and that something horribly wrong had had happened. That the Justice Department was using the software and not paying for it. Yeah, that's just yeah. basically it. You know, I mean, that's, that's, without any yeah, but, understanding of why. Yeah, no, but yeah, Bill. Did Bill Hamilton, the founder and creator of the software, had no idea why. And he was constantly coming up with explanations. Like one of the guys working on the contract team for the DOJ uh, was someone that he had fired. Like mm-hmm. maybe it was that. Maybe it was just a vendetta. Or, you know, but th- then those answers, you know, sort of didn't really end up panning out. And it keeps, he keeps digging into it. And, and, and as they go through the appeals process, he gets deeper into figuring out that there's like an espionage angle I- involved in the theft of the software that uh, becomes more and more clear. So yeah, so the ne- essentially the next nine or ten years, they're fighting this back and forth with the Justice Department. They keep on Justice Department keeps on appealing, and uh, and eventually it's all kind of the decision is reversed on a technical basis. And they're kind of left at square one, and they're like pretty screwed, right? Yeah. Because it's like they they don't have any money. They've spent years trying to fight this thing, and they keep on sort of hearing whispers of like there's something else going on here. Like, and and the, their central question is like, this is such a small amount of money for the government to pay yeah. them. Why won't they just pay it up, move on with their lives, and and like you know we'll find some other clients, you know. Um, and that's around the time that Danny Casolaro, I think, enters the story, right? It's yeah, like 1990. Danny, uh, uh, another trade publication journalist and consultant um, who knows Bill Hamilton, uh, approaches Danny and says, you should talk to this guy. Like, 
see if you can help him figure out what's going on. It might might be a good story if if you figure it out. So Danny goes into D.C. and and meets with Bill and Nancy Hamilton. They explain, you know, kind of what's going on, and they also tell him about this. Um, telephone call they'd had a few months earlier with a guy named Michael Riconosciuto who um, got a, got in touch with them, says that he's sort of a um, – does um, freelance work for the intelligence community, names all these intelligence bigwigs that he knows. And, and basically Bill and Nancy wrote down this two-hour-long – meandering phone call mm-hmm. and then spent the next several months leading up to them meeting Danny ch- doing their own sort of fact checking on this memo and and basically um, you know at that meeting gave it to Danny and that was sort of the uh, the roadmap that he used to dive into this project and it <laughs> one of the contentions in, in that Michael Reconoshua had told, Bill was that he put a back door into the software on in a Native American reservation in the Coachella Valley um, near Indio, California, which is mm-hmm. where they have the Coachella Music Festival now, mm-hmm. um, and that it was through a um, joint venture uh, partnership between this tiny tribe and uh, the Wackenhut Corporation. Um, which was a huge security company um, that was uh, George Wackenheim. founded by an ex-FBI guy and the board of directors was – Just uh, like a who's who of intelligence. Exactly. You know, from like every different, every different fucking agency. And, and, uh, William Wackenheim. Casey was outside counsel leading like right up before um, mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan was elected and he became head of CIA. Omar Mateen, the Pulse nightclub shooter, former employee at Wackenheim. Um, <laughs> it's a uh, – Long it, and distinguished list. Yeah, a very long and distinguished list. Also apparently operating in Belgium. Like it's it, – yeah. and, yeah. and they do a lot of different things. I mean it's important to note like they do anything from being the first – uh, private prison company mm-hmm. in America. They, uh, they do like office building front security guys who don't have a gun. Who, you know, yeah, just yeah, like yeah. check your ID or whatever in the building. Um, and that was their that was their kind of bread and butter. But they also were running um, security for Area Fifty One. Yep. They ran security for a lot of the nuclear um, facilities in the, of the United States. And we're a worldwide security company. They just have a lot of NASA, uh, NASA contracts, yeah. And they just have a lot of different hands in a lot of different places. Mainly just like wherever they can find money in the security industry, um, they go. But when you have, you know, the former leaders of the, you know, former and future leaders of the CIA, NSA, FBI, whatever, all on your board, they have offices all over the world. Access to a lot of fun opportunities, and I think that. Maybe we don't even explain this outright in our show, but it's kind of like a the movie and 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 Danny's story is a lot is a lot about what happens when you take um, what used to be government intelligence and military operations and privatize them, and the fun weird secrecy that can happen when you it's like the public private partnership yes. of the of the intelligence community because well, that that comes out. I mean, you mentioned Cabazon. And and that comes out very much there because what we see is like, 
you know, this this tribe, this very it's like twenty five people in it, right? There were twenty seven members, depending on what time you're talking about. Twenty seven members. Only n- nine of them are adults at the time of adult age. Eleven, Good nine. God. Um, which was yeah, and it, you know, it was there was a tract of it was essentially a tract of land. Not everybody lived on the reservation. Yeah. It was a tract of land. Uh, of a band of of the uh, you know a band a subset of the Kuya mm-hmm. um, tribe out there and uh, near Palm Springs and uh, you know it, it was basically just a big piece of desert you know from all accounts of the people we've talked to and the research we've done um, you know no running water all that stuff and you get um, a guy I mean should we just jump into John Philip Nichols I mean yeah. is, it, is are we there. Are we ready oh, for I this? do want to just put the, a real quick, just real quick, I want to put a, just a fine point on promise before we move yeah, on please, from that. Because yeah. it seems, it, it might seem to our listeners that like don't know anything about the story, right. that like it seems absurd that uh, something as like, you use the word Byzantine, um, and this story is extremely Byzantine, but something as confusing and tangled as this entire kind of network or web that that um, Danny kind of gets into could kick off from like a stole like stole like why is the DOJ stealing software and that that whole thing I could think that's kick really off this point. whole thing. I, I just want to point out that like Promise was both the like first of its kind and a kind of continuation of like kind of intelligence computing technology that had been sort of ongoing since I guess you would say the post World War right. Mm-hmm. But that oh, what promise, before, yeah. you know, the 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 opportunity that the DOJ had, or perhaps people in other uh, three-letter agencies <laughs> had, um, that th- where they could take this software is in selling it to a multitude of both public and private institutions, whether that be governments, banks, uh, you know. Um, other intelligence insurance companies yeah. insurance companies all over the world right can i can i just like throw one additional layer of like kind of perspective on this that yeah, i like course. to throw in here just as a caveat that's important to me i guess and hopefully it's well whatever it's important to me it's just like kind of putting the perspective of who's saying these things you know like that it's 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 an allegation that's out there and it's a point that sort of bill hamilton and the people around him are saying that these things happened to mm-hmm. promise that that it was sold around the world, and I just like to put in like who's saying what, yeah. Because this story involves so many different perspectives, and sometimes I I get a little bit lost in the sort of like throwing objective reality when when the reality can become a little bit more subjective and a little bit. It's just important to know who's saying what, right? But so let, let's just like dig in a little past Reconnaissance. Reconnaissance is not the only one who's saying that this is spy software, right? And w- and what is the spy software of of Promise? Let's just like throw this throw this little explainer in here, which is like at the same time around the same time that that he's meeting Michael, he's also getting people like uh, a a guy named Ari Ben Menashe. Like mm-hmm. Bill has a has hired like private investigators, lawyers, all these yeah. people with their feelers out there saying what the hell is the Justice Department doing with our software? Like, why is it why is it being stolen through trickery, fraud, and deceit, which is what the ruling was in the bankruptcy court? Like, what are they doing with it? Why won't they pay us? Like, what's going on? And all of the things that come back from people like Michael Reconosciuto or this um, former Israeli intelligence officer, Ari ben Menashe, are like, it's spy software. It's being used around the world to, it's been reprogrammed and it's being used around the world Multiple 
agencies in other intelligence agencies of other countries, other companies in other countries have promise. And it's it's just like 190 countries or just some, some insane yeah. number of countries or whatever it is, 80 countries, 100 countries, 100, I forgot how many, what, what the total number is. But it's out there and it's being used with a back door. And that back door allowed the U.S. or in another case, Israel – to look into how it was being used. That because is the allegation. The allegation is like, and the theory behind that is, is a, which it's, I mean, if, if it was basically copied and being resold, that would make a lot of sense to do that, right? I mean, that's it's a logical theory. It's a logical theory, and I think that that you can pretty much be sure that any similar software that's being sold today would probably have a very same kind of. Well, we know door. that it was from the Snowden leaks. We know yeah, that Angry Prism, had a which is very much a. Con- a very much a you know a um, continuation of or development out of you could assume the promise software it's the same theory um, was also being used to kind of in a similar fashion right but, so we think of it as like the sort of um, the beginning of a story that we just entered into with Snowden like in the middle yeah, the beginning yeah. of digi- if you want to look at it through this lens it's the beginning of of the digital surveillance age right? yeah and it, that's and I just think it's important to say that that's to, to throw in who's saying that stuff because it gets a little bit more complicated with all this stuff, with anything national security related, it's very difficult to find documents. <laughs> there are no receipts of sales yeah. by we third got a parties. lot of, I think, and I'd love to talk about them, amazing documents and audio tapes and firsthand accounts of this whole story that we told that have never been heard by anybody before. It's people in their own words saying what happened for a lot of this stuff. But when it's really like the computer national security stuff, very hard to find receipts. Well, that's then that's always been the, the difficulty with the promise story because it also is wrapped up just like a lot of the stuff that that is sort of the tentacles off of the octopus with a lot of I guess you could almost say personal narratives of people. I mean, you mentioned Ari Ben Menashe, right? Ari Ben Menashe is a he's a real guy and he does have real crazy actual legitimate connections. He actually just had his uh, insurance, his car insurance reinstated by the government of Canada after it was revoked because of his unsavory connections. Um, so in he what, does, in like arms world? His house was uh, firebombed a few years ago. Exactly, yeah. yeah. In, in uh, uh, what, Montreal he, or Toronto? He was selling free Ari Ben-Menashe socks to raise money for some obscure legal defense that he was... Uh, <laughs> he was also... I mean, you always just like, sell those. Let's throw a few more things in there because he's got a really strange resume. He was like kind of a PR flack at some point. Still for, is. Idi Amin. I think oh, he I might. Like he was. Up. It was various, like kind of uns. Like his whole, and also this is so much of, and this is again, like it's funny because a lot of the guys you talk to have the same kind of thing, where like they do have connections, but they also try to make them seem seem more villainous, maybe than they really even are, because it increases their mystique in some way. And so, like with Menashe, it's hard to tell how much of it is like, but it, it does really exist in some form. I know that he was like. He's friends with whatever j- sort of generic Central Asian dictators that there are and, like, you know, various just, uh, let's say, people who – somewhat autocratic uh, heads of state. Uh, and he sort of functions as, like, a uh, connection point for whatever business interests and also kind of, like, lobbying interests in the West that they have. Uh, and this has led him to to kind of get into a, a, lot, of, a lot of hot water with – diaspora groups, and also just various governments. We should also point out that he was perhaps the first person to come out of the intelligence community, the Israeli intelligence community, 
and revealed that Iran Contra was happening. Yeah, yeah. Bro, so he yeah. legitimate, you know, newsworthy. Yes, he told Bonafides. Time Magazine first. They didn't Bonafides. take it, Bonafides. and then he, and then so Iran Contra was actually broke in a uh, Lebanese newspaper, I believe. It's like a magazine. Yeah. yeah. Well, he and 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 lest we forget too, he is he is also the source of the claim. I believe he is, although I haven't read the book in a minute. But I believe he's the source of the claim that Robert Maxwell was involved. Uh, Ghislaine Maxwell's father was involved in the selling of the Promise software with the backdoor in it to not only Jordan, which is one of the more famous like allegations that it was of the co- countries it was sold to, but also. Bulgaria and the former USSR, so that that he was essentially like hawking that uh, Robert Maxwell, uh, sort of this 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 media tycoon in England, was hawking uh, a stolen copy of Inslaw's software behind the Iron Curtain for for Israeli interests. For Israeli interests, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, did you see the movie Tetris that came out last year? It's no, but Tetris. I know that Robert, Robert Maxwell Ma- is, is Robert Maxwell and his son are characters. So it's like I thought it was interesting because there's this story about him. You know, selling this yeah. one stolen software. Then there's another story of him getting Tetris out of uh, the USSR. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did, and this is so off topic, but the Robert Maxwell thing is really funny because I have this weird theory that he was doing a lot of strange stuff with like higher echelons of the Bulgarian Communist Party and like funneling mm. money out, especially towards the end. And it's interesting because he wrote all of these, uh, at least one. I shouldn't say all of these, but at least one, like. Like, like from him, introduction to a, a a book of speeches by the leader of the the Bulgarian Communist Party uh, that he put out under I think Pergamon Press. So strange, but he had all these weird connections with Bulgaria that I think the really unexamined part of that. Anyways, I'm yeah. interrupting. Oh, I just wanted to like correct my. It's like I I, was, I think I was thinking of Lumumba because of that book just came out about his assassination in the CIA. Or, oh yeah, that was but, the time time period way off from that. But it's totally off. But it was Mugabe, sorry, Mugabe, Robert Mugabe. Yeah, with the hat. And, and Ari, Ari was like his kind of publicity flack. He's I've seen he's on the internet like kind of defending what's going. It's like what. He's what is incredible. Going on this I, dream guest for the show. So you guys, so we should we should move on. I think for in the interest of time, from promise a little yeah. bit. It's covered in the fucking documentary. So there's so there's us, right? Yeah, we're also kind of characters in the and it, 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 we're actually at a good point in bringing us into it mm-hmm. because we started talking about the Wackenut Corporation. Yeah, and a lot of people ask me how I got into this story, and it's. I was researching the private prison industry. Uh-huh. Trying to get in on it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, was, I wanted to know why, why, my, why my investments were doing so well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and uh, no, I mean, yeah, I was just – I was trying to r- write about it. Find You're a it, journalist. Yeah, yeah. Try to find a fresh angle on it. It's an interesting topic. Also, it would like regularly make me actually cry. The research I was doing is so, so horrendous. Yeah. And, and I also found that, like, the piece that I would have written is just, it exists. I mean, you know? Yeah, that's, yeah. And then what more can you say? Because you can come up with all these examples of all these horrible things, but, you know, they're, they're getting uh, paid by – it's like a hotel for people that don't want to be there. And they're lobbying <laughs> to make things more illegal. Yeah. Drugs and, and they – oh, they love immigration. Um, oh, like ICE contracts and shit like that. That was their yeah. first private prison was for an immigration detention sense. center. Yeah. And when the amount of lobbying that they do to make things more illegal. But the and nickel then, and, and then, diming they do in the fucking prisoners with the phone call shit too and like taking away the typewriters and it's so insane. And then just – then you have people in the prisons and then it affects their whole family. Yeah. You know, it's like awful. Okay. 
So anyways, I realized that, oh, so I would be talking to um, criminal justice experts and they would always be talking about this company, Wackenhut. But when I entered the story, Wackenhut Corrections, their private prison concern, had changed its name to Geo Group. And mm-hmm. so I was like, what is this Wackenhut everybody's always talking about? And so I just started looking into Wackenhut and I got kind of obsessed with it. You know, as we mentioned, it's weird past in the 80s. And that's how I, because Danny was looking into Wackenhut, that's how I found a, an article about, I stumbled on an article about Danny Casolaro. And, um, and that just I, I I went on from there, you know, not really expecting it to take this long, um, but yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. So through that, through looking at Danny Castle, that does bring us to the Cabazon Indian Reservation, yeah. Because you know, like we we mentioned earlier, the 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 sort of the allegation is that Wackenhut, this sort of private intel, I think they're called private intelligence groups, but I guess they do private security too. So whatever they have, they have they're a, um, a conglomerate. Um, they are alleged to be making manufacturing testing weapons on this reservation. And yeah, now we have documentation that that there were major plans to to do biological to make to manufacture biological weapons and to manufacture uh, automatic uh, submachine guns and um, which is crazy because there's nothing on this land, right? Like there's like there's like very few it's houses. It's desert like, out there. I mean, it's Indio from 40 years ago, right? Yeah, early exactly. 80s, late 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 70s, early 80s. They were trying to build facilities out there. It's, it's got an aquifer underneath, but there's no running water because they haven't like built, developed the infrastructure yeah, in that yeah. area. Um, so yeah, I think like Wackenhut. Even we we could start with. I feel like we should start with. You know, we talked about Michael Reconnaissance tells Danny that he's done this software stuff out on this reservation, right? And it's like, well, wh- why why there, right? So could we could I just like toss us yeah. in, toss us into the reservation? Toss us into the res. And I, and I think I want to do that through the guy who he says is running this whole operation. A guy named Dr. John Philip Nichols, who's very important in Michael's life, um, very important in the Cabazon story and very important for U.S. history in a weird way, especially yeah. Native American rights, um, and in Danny's life, <laughs> and but and potentially in Danny's life. Um, but so so his story, and and we interviewed his son, one of his sons, Bobby incredible Moses interview Nichols. by the way. Thank you, incredible yeah. hair, really yeah. sweet guy, very um, California dude. Yeah, yeah, uh, very California or very like dude. like like I would shouldn't he's even say California, but just like Southwesty kind and he's of a, guy. He's yeah. like a he's like a He's a guitarist, you know, and part of the story, he was he was a young guy. He was in his 20s when his dad moved out to and brought his whole family out, him and his two brothers and his sister. They'd moved all mom. over the world. They'd yeah. been all, all over, over the, the world country. for the last, like, 40 years or whatever. I mean, well, him for the last 20 years, but uh, he had been moving all over the world for the last 40 years, and they land in this tiny desert reservation in Southern California. Um, and I think Dr. John Philip Nichols, his father, Bobby's father, uh, just a little explanation about him from what we could find. You know, we had amazing access to Bobby gave us his archive. We found other archival materials from a lot of different places where we actually got to hear things in, in John Nichols' own words, which have never been heard before outside of a law enforcement setting. Um, and uh, and putting together this tapestry of a guy who really doesn't have – there's not a lot of public information out there. It was one of the mm-hmm. key kind of – 
challenges for us, like understanding how this dude, John, John Philip Nichols, ends up at this reservation. And it's, a, it's like he starts in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in the you know, 50s as like a brewing industry. Then he winds up in D.C. through the Truckers Union, um, working with Jimmy Hoffa's people. Oh, he was Teamster. Yeah, he was, he was Teamster. Teamster. And he was, okay. he was uh, doing favors for Jimmy Hoffa that got him a federal warrant. Yeah. Um, and All he, right. Yeah. But that also, the fact that I didn't realize that for some reason, but that puts some of the later stuff into perspective as well. Yeah. And and he, you know, we 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 kind of blazed through this because there's so much story in the movie. But I think now is an opportunity to just like mention a couple of things. It's like he's sitting under the Treasury Building when he's arrested, right? And he and then like somehow he gets out of that situation, and he he and his entire family moved to Brazil in the late 50s. Yeah, I was going to say 58, I think. Yeah, 58, yeah. 59. If you know and, anything about Brazil, then you and then know it's what's like, going it's on like, then. What, yeah, what's, what's happening right then? Well, it's yeah. like what we found when we were putting together his his timeline is that he has this uncanny ability to be in countries, especially in Central and South America, right before they have, uh, you know, a anti-communist revolution. He just well, has amazing timing. Because you mentioned you mentioned Brazil, right? But right. he was also in Chile. Well, and after, well, yeah. So Brazil first, and then and then and then he's and then he, suddenly he's in in Chile well, right I, before. And and his story, and we don't even really dive into what he was doing in Chile. It's absolutely fascinating. What was he what doing? He's doing there, which is like ostensibly in Brazil. Okay, first off, in Brazil, let me just throw this out there. He's working for a Coca Cola bottling. Manufacturing company, you know, it's just like some yeah. some the seriously most, like, like most CIA anodyne job you can kind have. of corporate job, but it's like, oh yeah, like you know a lot about like it's like, yeah, well, I was yeah. in a brewing industry. It's like okay, I've seen a bunch of um, Freddie Arbuckle movies, and he's working for he's working for um, this 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 consulting company called Anderson Clayton, which was down there, mm-hmm. and it's one we had a we actually had a Brazilian assistant editor. And uh, and we had Bo- and we had John Nichols' business card from the time that Bobby gave us, and it says like Anderson Clayton CIA, <laughs> and I was like I was like, text our 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 assistant I was like I was like translate what does this mean? He's like oh that means comp- that means like that's what we would say incorporated, you know? Oh. I was like I was like what no no <laughs> in Portuguese, um, it was just really no. <laughs> So yeah, he's he's there. There's a revolution in Brazil. He's out. Of, he's out of there by the time the revolution happens. And he's in coup. He, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Coup. <laughs> uh, there's sorry. Coup. Um, then, which was a largely like bloodless, quick coup, but it was an anti-communist military thing. anti-communist. Yeah. Um, and then in 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 Chile, he's working with this company. Was it Church World Services? Yes, Church World Service. Great and, name. And and you can find this book called Chilean Vedado, which is about CIA and intelligence operations. So basically about American meddling in mm-hmm. Chile. Only in, it's, it's only it's in not in English. It's only in Spanish. And there's a whole chapter on John Nichols and, and, oh, really? and, and what yeah. he's doing down there with this Church World Services. And he's he's down there um, organizing uh, the evangelical movement, basically taking rural mm-hmm. people and trying to, you know, in a largely Catholic country and bringing out this evangelical movement, trying to grow their numbers of evangelicals. Um, 
into a voting group, you know, yeah, like people yeah. who, who you can convince that maybe that communism is not for them and that they should vote against it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just work from the Teamsters. You know how to organize. Well, it's funny too because you know that's the the Teamsters that immediately reminded me of Chile because the the first of all the Teamsters and the AFL CIO in general uh, had their hands in a lot of these coups and 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 yes. that's sort of like social democratic anti communism psychotic fucking bloodthirsty shit was all over and the solidarity centers and all that. But in Chile, especially the truckers were brought over to the side of reaction. And like this big trucker strike was, was a big reason why, uh, why Allende got, got, well, yeah. Why they, they helping making the economy scream and all that. Yeah. And, and I think that like, there's so much ripe territory for this, especially the Chile stuff. And, and, and John Philip Nichols, his relationship there to these people, we heard stories you know, that we couldn't put in just kind of like anecdotal stories that we couldn't fully verify about what was like, Henry, there's a story later on of him being at some ho- uh, some like hotel or country club in Palm Springs. Oh, the and story's like, this story is amazing. This is totally specious. Like, do not put any real fact, real, like, this cannot be verified, right? But it's that one of the Cabazon m- members is sitting there with John Nichols at this country club and Henry Kissinger in Palm Springs and Henry Kissinger walks in in the 80s. And just walks past the table and just says, hi, John, and then walks, walks past, you know? And it's like, well, that would be interesting, you know? Yeah. Like, it would make a lot of sense is what yeah. it would, you yeah. know, that you have these mm-hmm. kind of a dude like John Nichols who's going in, being a religious leader, even though he seems to have, you know, he has, he has like a mail-in degree as a doctorate of religion, but it, yeah. he, has, he doesn't seem to have a real, necessarily a real, real religious connection, but he's a very smart cunning dude with a uh, with a problem with the federal government that he's trying, you know, perhaps trying to work off with this like jail deal or whatever he was dealing with with the federal government. Um, and he's organizing all these people. Um, and then lo and behold, Allende is elected. John Philip Nichols leaves. And shortly after, there's a coup in Chile. And he moves on. There's a great scene um, where uh, his son is basically outlining all of the places that they moved to, and it's it's so overwhelming and obvious that he's hopping from, let's say, incident to incident and hotspot to hotspot. That it, it's almost like I mean, it's it's almost like funny. It's so ridiculous that obviously there's something you know going on. There's here. something going. On. <laughs> it's like there's definitely something going on, uh, and and I think that like. The difference between maybe what what I think the strength of us and Christian and me, especially Christian working on this, and say like what the Washington Post or New York Times or whatever would do with a story like this, that not that they would ever do anything with a story like this, but just sort of like we're allowed we allow ourselves to speculate a little bit and to try to extrapolate things and try to establish connections that that like you just there there is no kind of like smoking gun with some of this stuff. Yeah. It just doesn't exist. But just because there isn't doesn't mean that that didn't happen and that you shouldn't theorize about it or wonder about it because if you're limiting yourself to to the absolute like written record, you're actually losing a lot of information I think mm. along the way. And I know that sounds a little bit squishy, but it's it's a subtle and weird point, but I think it's worth making if you 
when you were talking to his son, because that, that interview, there's several very ar- arresting and literally, uh, genuinely, no pun intended, arresting interviews uh, in in the in the in the documentary. When you're talking to his son, like, do you get you you get the impression that that like the viewer rather gets the impression that like he really does love his dad and he views yeah, his dad sure. as this like he like he kind of, he looks up to him and especially it seems like involving a lot of the native stuff but he also kind of has this like but like there's some things about his dad that he has his own suspicions of for sure you know yeah I mean the reason he we showed up at his house. So you just cold we call, just, like you just, we just knocked, knocked on the yeah, door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so friendly. He's sweet. He's I really like him a lot. Yeah, guitar I, it, it, teacher. Also, just to set that up, like we were, this process for us was made a lot, ton of phone calls, but often we would just show up because we knew that we would get one yeah. chance with somebody, yeah. and it's a. In my mind, a lot harder to slam the door than it is to hang up the phone. Yeah, or just you slam the door up. and the person's still right there. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And so, for us, they gotta yeah. come to the door. Who is this person? I'm like, who is this <laughs> yeah. person standing outside? Who are my these house? two funky fresh white boys at yeah. my door? <laughs> and we're, yeah, and and for us, I think as as people who are not, you know, we're kind of naive's in the in this world. Like Christian, Christian has a background in photojournalism. I should say he worked for the New York Times for years. Um, I have a background in fictional filmmaking, you know. So I'm a lot. Of, I'm used to doors being slammed in my face, but it's usually about like, can I shoot here? You know, it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. we're n- naives in this world of like investigative journalism and making a documentary or making a four part documentary series was beyond our normal sphere of knowledge. But anyways, Bobby. Uh, but we would show up on these doors with with people like Bobby, and we'd be like have no idea what we're about to experience because in our mind it's like Bobby's dad is a very dangerous you know yeah. scary and Bobby dude. had gone to prison for embezzling money from the Capazan Casino oh Bobby did he too he went to a Wacken Hut prison I, I'm not it, it's in the paper so that's, you know, that's later after all yeah. the story like he like, ironically oh ended my. up in a Wacken so we had no Hutt idea prison. what we were getting ourselves into but basically he was really sweet and uh, he wanted to know if like he basically was going to help us help him figure out who his dad was interesting you know maybe if i if i give you whatever d- data i've got maybe if you mix it up with whatever you guys have come up with like maybe together you know with all of that we'll figure out you know what was really going on cuz he you know he's a smart he's a really smart guy and he knows that as we, we as you guys picked up on there's something more to the story. That, yeah. yeah. Well, certainly his dad got in some trouble later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, to 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 one of the reasons that that uh, Casalero starts looking into Cabazon is because there's this murder. There's this execution style murder. Which, listen, I got to tell you, the phrase execution style gets thrown a lot around a lot when you're talking about murders. But this is pretty execution style. It's Three a, people sitting down. It's a triple homicide. Triple homicide. Shot in the head with a 357 Magnum, which is a... I don't know if you've ever shot one of those before, but that is just some kick to that motherfucker. So it's also a little confusing to me how everyone was just still seated for all three of those three shots. Three people, yeah. Because that's it, a... That is a... I've shot one several times. And, and that's Fre- a, Fred... The person who was killed, Fred the, Alvarez. The, the main target of that hit, presumably. Yeah. Uh, he had a, a gun on, in his waistband, like, w- you know, when he yeah. died. Yeah, um, They, yeah. <laughs> so, right, Danny starts looking into Cabazon because 
Michael says that there was all this going on out there, this Wackenhead Corporation, this weapons testing, and Danny, and then all uh, run by John Nichols. Briefly, Danny is like forgets all about Promise, as far as I can tell from looking at it, and and he's just like pitching a story just about. Cabazon. Yeah. And um, that murder, by the way, was is unsolved. That murder is unsolved. To this day unsolved. unsolved. Yeah. Those murders. murders you know, that, yeah. that incident. Triple homicide. Um right. So yeah, the, basically um when Wackenhut was gearing up and, and John Nichols was gearing up as tribal administrator, um Fred Alvarez, one of the tribal members, started questioning what was going on. He assumed that that John was skimming money from the casino because there was a lot of projects happening, but a lot of investment, but not, nothing was going back to the tribal members who were, you know, co-owners of yeah, everything yeah. that happened and should be involved in the profit profit sharing, which is how it goes now. My first girlfriend ever got a, a bunch of money from a tribal casino in California. Yeah. I mean, you mean a, gambling or yeah, off the top? Off, off the top, <laughs> she was skimming it. Uh, no, but no, like it's a you know, it's a big thing with some tribes. You get paid like the like often a lot of these tribes an annuity or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you get paid an annuity, and like a lot of tribes, especially like because Indian casinos are a fairly new invention, um, or a fairly new you know it's a new thing. And it's just important to maybe we'll just throw it out yeah, here now, yeah. and if we don't dive into this in the series, I hate to keep on saying that, but like this story is the reason why. Your first girlfriend had the, that money essentially yes. because Dr. John Philip Nichols moved in with his family to this place, started a poker casino and bingo parlor in the early eighties. The first fighting, Native American, the first Native American poker room, started fighting the the local government, state government. They took that all the way to the fe- to the Supreme Court, the Cabazon versus the State of California, in nineteen eighty six and nineteen eighty seven. And this is almost like entirely outside of our timeline, but like. That case sets up what we have now, the Indian Gaming Act, yeah. which, which makes gambling, uh, you know, le- tribal gaming legal and the, them able to make money and gave for these tribes the first real kind of financial independence that wasn't a subsidy from the government. And it's known, you know, at the Cabazon versus California is a huge case in, in, in Native American law that's had a lot of benefits for a lot of people. And it comes out of this lawsuit coming from his fight for essentially his idea, his theory that you can do anything on a Native American reservation. Yeah, it's a, it's a sovereign, sovereign country. Land. I mean, it's hard well, maybe for and people. And that's how he gets into this idea of, well, what else can we do out here? Yeah. Well, I have a question about else? that because from my understanding of his, the way he operates is that. John Nichols. Yes. He's got his feet in and out of all sorts of, you know, whether it's agencies, organizations, corporations, organized whatever, crime. whatever, organized crime, which is what I want to talk about, because who would be very interested say, yeah. in getting in on the gambling racket? Right. Uh, the people who make a lot of money in the gambling racket, organized crime. So, uh, one, one of the very interesting documents we got from Bobby was his um, recently deceased brother Mark's um, birth certificate. Mm-hmm. And so this is even years before the Cabazon Reservation, back in the Milwaukee days, and listed as his godfather on his oh, birth, birth certificate is one of the heads of the Milwaukee, one of the crime families. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the well, I mean, obviously, but the Teamsters thing. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, like that, that's the thing is too. Like, like you know, you, I you, hope we never try to make like a, a movie with Teamsters on it because we're gonna have some problems. Well, right? hopefully, maybe a TD. I mean, the Hoffa's kind of out on that. I point. saw the Irishman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, and if Teamsters certainly worked on that film, um, <laughs> yeah. but including like Teamsters, so like who are like probably part of like Jimmy Hoffa's sons. Like political cock, whatever. It's Bobby very contend, weird to think Bo- about. His son Bobby contends that later on, when John Nichols went to went to prison for something else, that that the FBI pulled him out and asked him about Hoffa's disappearance. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So he joined the Teamsters gang in prison. Um, it's yeah, and and so like there's there's this sort of mob style hit, which is another right. thing and, and like mob, to say about murders. Ma- mob guys, mob connected guys had been brought in to run the casino. run the casino. Yes. Yeah, and as Bobby says so eloquently in the show, in our show, well, how who else are you going to get to run a card room? I mean, who knows how to run a card room, a card room better than these guys? It's true. I would say now you know, times have true. changed a little bit. Look into the Chinese. Huh. been to Oaks Card Club in in, in Oakland. Pretty good at it. Solid operation. Solid operation. They did actually. There was a crazy like 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 machine gun style robbery there uh, like a decade ago. That's there's I think there's footage of. Anyways, um, like this, but this murder connects to a murder in San Francisco. That's correct. Yeah. And uh, it's 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 so hard to talk about this stuff because like in on maybe an audio form. And you're lucky you did a podcast or excuse me a. Uh, Documentary because there are so many different tendrils of this octopus, I guess, um, that Casalero also starts looking into. He starts yeah. looking into this into this murder in San Francisco of Michael Reconosciuto's former business partner, who's also a financier of the weapons develop the night vision goggles that they're develop. We forget. We I mentioned biological weapons and machine guns. I forgot to mention night vision goggles that they were uh, planning on manufacturing on the on the reservation. Yes, and the, so the, and, and Michael's not only there. You know, a, after essentially after f- the triple homicide in the desert of, of Fred Alvarez, who was trying to get essentially get John Nichols kicked out of the reservation, mm-hmm. that paves the way for all these intelligence-connected people to come in and Michael Reconosciuto to come into the reservation. Under, I should mention, also, the the care of Dr. John Philip Nichols, who is not only running the reservation uh, as his tribal administrator in the poker room and the bingo parlor, all that stuff. I mean, bingo parlor was actually a couple years later, but all that stuff. But he's actually a, a... what he calls himself as a, a social psychologist oh, who is there like to I'm help too. Michael with all of his own problems in his life and to get a security clearance in order to do all this work for Wackenhut, to do all this weapons manufacturing plans for Wackenhut. We have invoices of <laughs> uh, money that, that – a lot of money that Michael's father is paying John Philip Nichols to psychoanalyze uh, – Michael or whatever, help him, you know, get on the straight and narrow, you know. The straight and narrow being doing, manu- you know, weapons research yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. And it, and, and it really is a portrait, I think, importantly, just to, I know we got to get to San Francisco, but it's an important portrait of, like, the early Reagan years when it's, like, there are there are Central American the, communism is essentially the boogeyman of this entire story. Yes, right? yes. The Cold War and communism is the boogeyman, and there's all these you know proxy wars that we're fighting, and it's like, well, what can we do? You know, in the in the administration, we've got well, we could you know hire people like John Philip Nichols and Wackenhut to manufacture low cost arms to send down to these places, and we will 
defeat the Russians as they try to creep, you know, the communist Russian creep well, into the, America. And I think an important part to note, too, like that, I, I'm not sure this means anything, but it means something in some way, is that, like, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about manufacturing all of this stuff, night vision goggles, biological warfare, your submachine guns, uh, and having them tested and having some of these weapons tests done by contra generals yeah they in, show up in yeah. in uh which is which is really wild in on this reservation well a big part of the force of the contras actually fighting were these like native tribes there and like there was this sort of like there was this strange like strain of um like pro contra activism in America at the time, mm. when it was like the the uh, the like we must support like the native contras, like the Indian contras who are sort of fighting, like they, like comparing the struggle of, of like the Native Americans, uh, in, particularly in like the early part of the country's history, uh, with the the struggle of the contras. They were, pro- I think, they were also compared to George Washington. And Everyone gets compared. Yeah, to <laughs> you know what I mean. Found out recently, couldn't bust a nut, but. That's really off topic. No, that's okay because the like pr- it's important to note that prior to Reagan coming into power, Stansfield Turner, the CIA director for Jimmy Carter, had cleaned house of the CIA. Mm-hmm. Like I think maybe two thirds of freelance agents, you know, and uh, and operatives and uh, case officers were laid off. So now you have just out in the world, all of these people with a very specific set of skills and no job. Meanwhile, there's all these secret wars gearing up. You know, it's kind of like insanely perfect timing. Yeah, yeah. Very well, and a lot of reasons those secret wars are gearing up is because there are all of these people looking for freelance kids, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, it's really dialectic. It's not just, you know, one so to the other. It's very reminiscent of 2003 Iraq and, and uh, the bathification. But uh, so you guys, from what I understand, also had – you bought a significant amount of arms for this. Yeah, so we were trying – we came into this whole story as customers. Yeah, yeah, know? of course, of course. And trying we were looking promise, for good deals. Trying to buy heroin. Trying to, yeah. yeah, wheel and deal. But so, you know, we, we have like – you see, we have tons of documents from all different kinds of sources that that we found. Some of which we just like don't really. We, a lot of people who worked on this don't know where we got this stuff from because we wanted to keep that secret from everybody involved. Yeah. Um, there's very few people who know where we got everything from. Um, essentially, just Christian and I. But um, the so, so we would just find invoices and random things, and so we started just calling people who who were out there. Who were working with you know these intelligence operatives and stuff like that? So we so we call like there were in these reams CIA. of papers that we got there are invoices with that are unredacted with names and amounts and yeah. So all we, kinds and of some of these guys are still alive. So we would just call them up and try to meet them. And there was there was this one guy who was an arms dealer who, who we know had had uh, who had potentially done some work with John Nichols out there. We call him up. While we found that invoice later. We actually learned about him because we called a journalist who told us about another journalist oh, yeah, who yeah, met yeah. a guy. And, and, and so he was, then, he was like, oh, you got to call him. I don't know if he'll talk to you. Like, he's a, he's a real curmudgeon. But call him up. See what he says. And we call him up. We're just driving around. A lot of this was just us driving around and just, like, knocking on doors, like I said, and calling people randomly and just yeah, praying yeah. that they would pick up. <laughs> and so we call this guy – and um, and we're like, do you remember Dr. John Philip Nichols? And he's like, oh, man, that guy. Yeah, of course. Like, I was out there. He came. He brought me in. He, I, I used to manufacture weapons, right? Like, I, I, that's my job. And he brought me in because he wanted me to make silencers for him. So I go into the office there, the tribal office, and and 
he's saying, how, how good are your silencers? And I said, pretty good. He's like, all right, well, why don't we, he's like, calls the secretary. He's like, bring us in some phone books. He's like, how, how many phone books do you need? He's like, phone, oh, to shoot through, uh, I don't know, t- five, 10 phone books, bring in 10 phone books. Brings in 10 phone books. And in the office, in the tribal office, he pulls out the silencer, the nine millimeter, and, sh- and, and, he, and he's like, keep the door open. Shoots this phone book, then brings the secretary in. He's like, you know, Martha, whatever her name is, like, did you hear anything in here? And she's like, no, I'm, what's that smell? You know, it's like the gunpowder smell. And he's like, pretty good. You know, John was like, all right, we, we like the product. So well, this guy also, he brands himself, he tells it, he, yes, he is a gun manufacturer, but he also says that he's a gun fighter. Like, mm-hmm. oh God, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, and, yeah. and, and you know, winking very aggressively that, you know, he's not in the CIA, you know what I mean? Or, or says that he was. Was the age, does the age match up to Vietnam or like? It's, it, I think most of his work was in Central and South America. Okay. Um, but he, uh, as a contractor, is what he, he was saying. But, but so he, but he, he did not end up manufacturing stuff with John Nichols because he said that he was like, but he wanted to pay me in shrimp. <laughs> and we're like, what? what? And he's like, he's like, John Nichols was such a hustler. He wanted, you know, he's like, I didn't want to get involved with this guy. You know, you know, he's, he's just dripping with agency connections because, you know, he's introducing to me people like the Jackal, you know, and, I, you know, you, you don't know the Jackal unless you know somebody in the agency. You know, it's like, it's like, what? Like gonna? Carlos the Jackal? That's what he was saying, you know, that he had arranged a meeting with him. And so he's like, <laughs> he tells us that, that John Nichols was going, he was like, I want to sell all this stuff, all these like submachine guns and things over to um, the Philippines, okay? Mm-hmm. We're going to do like small arms to the Philippines. They don't have a lot of money, but they do have shrimp. Pan fried, deep fried, stir fried. And That's, so they were going that, you know to. What? Facts. And he's like, he's like, he's like, so he was designing a way for us to manuf- set up a manufacturing facility, carry it out on only, it could only touch federal roads by the time these guns got to the shipping port on the coast, couldn't touch state land because that's why they were doing it is the, the state of California. They couldn't, they couldn't have any state laws touched. And then we would put it on boats and they would bring us shrimp in return. He's like, I, you know, what am I going to do with all that shrimp? You know, like (laughs) I just can't do the shrimp. And so we, we just met up with this dude. We go to his, like, he's like a boutique arms manufacturer. He does a lot of, like, law enforcement, whatever. He says he no longer works with the CIA because those guys are, or he calls them the, calls them the Christians the, in action. He said the same thing about Hollywood. Yeah, he said that those guys are assholes. Well, they tried Christians to kill him, that, all this stuff. But we go into this place. There's a it's McLaren so sports beautiful. car. Just it's like, like, you could eat off the floor, and it's like, it's where he makes, McLaren? like. McLaren? Yeah, yeah, just we, in the shop. And it's sitting there as this this like McLaren sports car, and and just like this incredible tool belt. And we're just like, you know, it's like five p.m. on a Tuesday, and he, we called him an hour earlier and just drove to his place. He was like, yeah, come meet me there. And we're just sitting in there. After a while of talking to him, we're just like, I was just like, dude, what makes you think that we're not, you know, in CIA, the CIA yeah, yeah. intelligence operatives? He, and he's just he he's like. I'm not worried about you guys. <laughs> That's so disrespectful. <laughs> I know. I was, I was like, well, buddy, we could, you know. I could be, I could, I mean. This guy I, was I a ma- major, 
he, did he say that he's dude. a sociopath? Yeah, he told us straight up. He was just, he was just like the kind of work I do. He's like I'm what I'm what you call a sociopath. Ah, uh, interesting. And we're like, oh, okay. And he's like, as long as you know that's who you are, it, you can do a lot of amazing things in life. I was like, oh, okay, true. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah, I think a lot of characters in this. Did story he show you? Did he film. show you any? Yeah. Any. Essentially, what we got on. Yeah, yeah, he showed yeah, us a yeah, lot of weapons. He had a shit ton of weapons around, and he's basically retired now. But um, basically, what the West Coast part of this story is that we got onto, that I became excited about when Christian was talking to me about it, is a group of extremely intelligent, likely I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist, likely sociopathic people who are committing crimes with the government sometimes maybe for the government, often for organized crime, and also just freelance for themselves. We started. We were asking the arms dealer, that guy, about another character that we can talk about. And he was like, we were saying he was committing murders in, in the United States. He's like, oh, yeah, doing work on the side, huh? Mm, can't do that. And it's like, oh, man, you know, this is just, it's kind of an accepted, weird, yeah. strange world that we started looking into of all these brilliant guys who were doing, I to my morals, very bad things. I want to mention something um, that we didn't talk about in the interview because that would be, uh, I feel like that would put her on the spot. But Liz has uh, had in Google Meets, an octopus thing on her head. Oh, yeah. It's my anti-Semitic, autistic, sleep uh, stuffed animal hat. For um, uh, several months, Liz has had a filter on her. uh, (laughs) Since Greta Thunberg was called out by, I believe, German media for having her autistic uh, octopus toy or whatever it is, Liz has had this filter on no matter who we're meeting with. <laughs> and I really just got to say, I admire that in a way that I've admired few things throughout my life. I, yeah, we were in a meeting just yesterday, and I didn't realize until literally we were hanging up that I had this octopus on my head. Do you not see yourself in it? No, I, well, I, first of all, I'm not sitting there looking at myself. Oh, I make mine the whole thing, yeah. That's, you guys should change your behavior. Um, Fine, I'll put a shirt back on. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. I just like forgot. I didn't look at it. I like it. It makes you non-threatening. I, feel I think like. it's you know. I like that it's kind of um, askew. Mm-hmm. It's got a little attitude. It it's does. like it's a little off to the side. You know, it's, it's like got a, a little like yeah. It's like a flapper hat. or yeah. something. It's uh, yeah, showing some things. Well, we have a part two of this coming out later this week. Um, we get into even way crazier way shit. Cra- it gets way crazier. Yeah. Kind of a marathon couple of episodes. We just, yeah. Anyways, um, yeah. My name is Brace. I'm Liz. We're joined by producer Young Chomsky, and the podcast is called Turn On. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jeffrey Epstein.